Well, good morning. I just wanted to communicate, even as uh, we begin this morning, um, that every time we gather, I am so encouraged and blessed by the opportunity. And I count it one of um, the greatest joys uh, to be able to open the word together on a weekly basis with you. So you're still in Psalm 11. The title for this morning's message is this, living as soon-to-be royalty. Living as soon-to-be royalty. I had forgotten that here in Chattanooga, our weather patterns can tend to be rather unpredictable in the summer. We've had quite a few storms the last couple of weeks, haven't we? And uh, it's been amazing to me that you can get up in the morning and check the weather app on your phone, and it will say something like, beautiful skies, sunny all day, not a chance of rain. And by 11.15, we're under a flash flood warning because of a pop-up thunderstorm. And about you, but sometimes it seems like life can be a bit like the unpredictable weather patterns here in Chattanooga. And it's quite possible that you're actually moments away from your own pop-up thunderstorm with all of its inherent danger in your life. As we turn to Psalm 11 this morning, David is actually facing one of the pop-up thunderstorms of life. And whether these storms are large or small, whether they are life-dominating and all-encompassing or just day-overwhelming, there's always potential for real harm when it comes to thunderstorms. Now, this psalm was most likely written years before David became king. And we're not exactly sure the historical context. Perhaps he's on the run from King Saul, who wants him dead because he knows God has chosen David to be the future king of Israel. But whatever the case, David is in real danger. So in our time together, let's walk through this psalm and discover a soon-to-be royal's perspective on life. And that perspective has three different parts. Number one, life is dangerous. Number two, safety is deceptive. And number three, God is dependable. So number one, life is dangerous. We just heard it read, but let's read verses one through three again. Psalm 11. I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked shoot uh, string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows that the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So in these verses, we get just a glimpse into the pop-up thunderstorm on the horizon for David. His friends, his counselors, are pointing out to David that he has real enemies that intend real harm, and they have the capacity, not just the desire, but the capacity to harm him in subtle, silent, and devastating ways. Life is dangerous for David, and life is dangerous for you and I as well. Perhaps not in the same way that David faces here in Psalm 11. 
And in fact, you and I may not actually agree always on what the danger that we're facing actually is. But few will argue this point. There is real danger all around us in a broken world. But notice that as David and his counselors view the same context at the same time, their perspective is different. His counselors are warning him and encouraging him along a course of action. They're telling him, here's danger and here's what you should do. Now, David's response, his question is laced with incredulity. How can you say this? How can you suggest that I do this? You see, David has a different perspective on where to go in the midst of danger. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But David also has a different perspective on where the danger actually lies. Now, let's pause to acknowledge this. In our lives also, the apparent danger that we face may not be actually where the danger is. The danger that's visible may not actually be the most dangerous thing about our circumstances. You see, danger is often more subtle and insidious than it first appears. It's kind of like the child who's afraid of thunder, but not lightning. Thunder's scary, right? It's loud. It can shake the house. It can cause panic, but it can't hurt you. Now, lightning, on the other hand, actually gives light. It allows you to see in the darkness. It's even pretty at times, but it can kill you in an instant. The danger isn't in the thunder. The danger is in the lightning because danger is often more subtle. So what might, like, what might this look like in our circumstances? Well, you may feel like there's relational danger in hurting the feelings of an attractive coworker who is obviously interested in you. And if you refuse his or her advances, you may be jeopardizing that relationship, your job, a work environment of ease and comfort and no drama. But that's just the thunder. The lightning is real. It's more subtle. It's the danger of cultivating an emotionally unhealthy and morally unacceptable relationship with someone who is not your spouse and who doesn't worship the same Lord that you do. Or how about this example? The story that our culture tells us, the narrative, is that, is that there's real danger in not living authentically, right? That it's truly harmful to you if you don't create your own identity and then live that out, whether that's a sexual identity or gender identity or otherwise. 
And it warns you that others are genuinely harming you if they refuse to accept that identity. But that's just the thunder. The lightning is the more subtle danger of undermining or rejecting God's eternal plan for your flourishing when he made you with two X chromosomes or an X and a Y chromosome, according to his good design. Or how about this example? Even in our own context, it may feel dangerous to you to make yourself vulnerable to your life groups or to your pastors by opening up about a particular sin struggle or some shameful or painful part of your past. But that's just thunder. The lightning is the real more subtle danger of living a guarded and lonely Christian life, feeling like you aren't genuinely loved by God and others because you are not generally, genuinely known by others. You have not allowed yourself to be truly known by the people of God. True, life is dangerous, but often the danger is often more subtle than we recognize. David's friends saw one danger. David saw through that danger to a greater danger. Number one, life is dangerous. Number two, safety is deceptive. Now, what is the counsel that David's friends give to him? In a word, run. Get out of here. So safety for them apparently lay in David moving geographical locations, going to some other place. And there would be times throughout David's life, if you go back to the Old Testament, where David would follow this example. He would take this counsel. But in this instance, David is incredulous that such counsel would be given. And those giving this advice back it up with what appears to be wisdom. What, what does David write down that they're saying? David, if you as the foundation for the next version of God's kingdom are destroyed, what will become of the rest of the righteous? That's one way to read that particular sentence. Or perhaps, David, things are so bad right now, down to its core, society has left God, wrong is considered right, and the foundations of our orderly living have been destroyed. So how can the righteous expect to accomplish anything? So David, you just better run. And perhaps we share a lot in common with that particular perspective. The question this psalm is asking of us through, da through David is this. Where are you going to turn for safety in the midst of danger? To whom or what will you entrust your life? Now, safety in this world is deceptive. The wisdom of David's friends is actually where the danger truly lies. The threatening circumstances, that's just the thunder of the situation. 
The lightning is a danger we all face. The lightning of trusting primarily in our own ability to provide for our own safety in the pop-up storms of life. Now, consider who David is. David is the chosen future king of Israel. He is the anointed of God, predestined by God to rule God's people. So for David to turn to safety in his present circumstances anywhere other than God is to undermine and betray his own promised future. God had anointed King David. God would protect David. And at times he would use that or would use secondary means like David running to protect David. But that is just the point where primarily does safety come from? For you, in your mind, does it come from your own ability to reason, manipulate, or decide your way out of danger? Or does it come from our own cleverness in avoiding danger? Or maybe it comes from our courage in facing up to the danger. Or primarily, does our safety, that deliverance we're longing for, does it come from someone outside of our human limitations? You see, where we turn in danger matters. So life is dangerous. Safety is deceptive. And so David begins to consider what is truly at stake. As the storm comes, he can either go run under a tree in apparent safety, seeking genuine shelter, facing the danger as he was counseled, or he can turn somewhere else. And how did Psalm 11 open? Now, it's emphatic in the original language. You can't necessarily see it here in our translation, but this is what David says. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? Why, David? Why, rather than running under a tree for... To, to find your own safety and security, are you going to face up to that danger, face up to your enemies, relying on God rather than your own ingenuity and ability to protect yourself? Well, the answer to that is number three, because God is dependable. God is dependable. Now, if you read Psalm 11 the second half of the psalm seems almost disconnected from the first half. There's a significant break. And the reason for that is David's gaze is listed, lifted from the dangerous circumstances surrounding him and the advice to him in the midst of those circumstances. And his gaze is lifted from that to the God who is above all of that, untouched by it. And as he considers God, he reveals for us, for our benefit, some 3,000 plus years later, four reasons to believe in the dependability of God in the midst of danger. 
First, because he is near. God is dependable because he is near. This is referencing the presence of God. He says, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, the temple or the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God in Old Testament Israel. And in particular, in David's day, it was the tabernacle, a portable worship structure. It symbolized God's presence among his people. It was where he met them in grace and mercy. Now, David doesn't want to jeopardize his proximity to the presence of God by taking matters into his own hands. God is dependable because God is accessible. He is near. He is present. But then he says, the Lord, his throne is in heaven. So number two, God is dependable because he is sovereign. This is referencing the power of God. Now, while danger exists in our created existence, God is on his throne in heaven. There is no danger in all the universe to God's sovereignty and God's power. Danger is actually outside of the experience of God. So friend, if God is present and powerful, then what cause do the people of God have to be fearful in any amount of danger? Now David goes on, verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. And then he prays. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Not only is God dependable because he's present and because he's powerful, but number three, because he's righteous. And this is referencing the purity of God. Now in those verses we just read, the word righteous is used three times. But it's not a word that you and I are used to using in everyday conversation. In these verses, it's used once to describe a category of people as opposed to the wicked, the wicked and the righteous. It's used a second time to describe God. He is righteous. And it's used a third time to describe the kind of deeds that God loves. Now, in the Old Testament, when someone is described as righteous, it meant that they were just. They were ethically upright in their conduct and in their character. And when it applies to people, it doesn't describe perfection, but rather a life of faith worked out in obedience to God. And those with this kind of faith are routinely marked by ethical goodness, ethical conduct, ethical character. And in these verses, God is described as examining the righteous, scrutinizing them, often by means of testing. He searches the righteous through and through. Now, what does this mean? We know what it is to examine or judge individuals simply by a look, don't we? 
Back in June 2001, one of our former presidents was asked at a joint press conference if President Putin could be trusted. Then President George W. Bush replied in these terms, yes, I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. We had a very good dialogue. I was able to get a sense of his soul. A man deeply committed to his country in the best interests of his country. Seven years later, Putin would invade Georgia. Fourteen years later, in 2014, he would invade Crimea. And in 2022, he invaded Ukraine. Apparently, it's rather difficult to get a sense of a man's soul with a look. It's hard to judge the character of men by simply looking or even dialoguing. But not so with God. God's examination is perfect because he himself is pure. There's nothing to cloud his judgment. He is present, he's powerful, and he's pure. So in context, David is saying that he's going to entrust himself to this justice, the righteousness of the God who tries the righteous. God's purity in David's eyes is not a reason to run from God, but rather to entrust himself to God. David knew he was by faith trusting God, and that is what God requires. Now, it's quite possible that as you read verse 5, there are elements that are a bit terrifying. Go ahead, look back down at verse 5. Notice that the verse contains two contrasts. God is acting in two different ways upon two contrasting groups of people. The first are the righteous, and the second is the wicked. He's acting towards those with faith in him and those without faith in him. The faithful, we might say, and the faithless. But what is the contrasting posture of God to these contrasting group of people? Well, towards the righteous, he's examining towards the wicked, he's hating. So if you consider that contrast, then the examining eye of God is actually a function of God's love for his people. If his posture towards the faithless is one of hatred, the posture towards the faithful can only be one of love. And in this verse, that love is expressed in the idea of examining. God lovingly examines his people by allowing challenging circumstances in our lives so that our faith in him is strengthened and so that our instinct to move towards him in good times and bad times is purified. God is dependable because he's righteous and therefore he can be trusted to, be, to act on behalf of those who trust him. So God is dependable because he's present, he's powerful, he's pure. David says forth that God is dependable because he's faithful. And he's referencing here the promises of God. 
Look at verse 7. The verse ends, the upright will see his face. Now, maybe you remember back when Moses was on the earth and he was interacting with God back in the book of Exodus. David, or rather Moses, asked God for God to allow him to see his glory. God responded that he would hide Moses in a rock outcropping, cover him with his hand, pass by him, and only after he had passed would he remove his hand so that Moses could get a glimpse of the afterglow of God's glory. Kind of overboard, don't you think? Why all the precaution? Well, God answers, because no man can see my face and live. You see, ever since our parents walked with God in the Garden of Eden in perfection, there's something within man that longs to see the face of God, that longs to return to paradise and see God. And the anticipated euphoria of that experience gets perverted in so many different ways by Satan. It gets turned into idolatrous lies attached to idols that can never fully satisfy that longing, like the euphoria of drunkenness or recreational drugs or abusing medicinal drugs or sexual addiction or the high from weed or mushrooms or the constant pushing of physical limitations to get that adrenaline kick and rush. All of these desires and activities speaking, speak to something deeper and more profound, a longing to experience something out of this world, namely seeing the face of God. What does verse 7 say? This is a promise from God. The upright will see his face. Now, Revelation 22 tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, when the new creation is finally complete, God's servants will serve him and they will see his face. There is nothing more desirable, more euphoric, more tantalizing, more precious, more beautiful, nothing that can create more longing in a follower of God than that phrase, we will see his face. But 3,000 years after this psalm was written, how do we know that God is still dependable in these ways? This week, when you face your own pop-up storm that you didn't see coming, it was clear and sunny skies, and all of a sudden you are facing the danger of a pop-up thunderstorm in your life, how do you know this God is still who he says he is. Because what David discerned of God by faith, we receive by sight in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus himself is the presence of God near us. The Son of God is described as having tabernacled among us. He was the true temple 
the dwelling place of God to whom the Old Testament worship structures all pointed. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But he's also the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us exactly that. Nowhere in the entire universe can you see the power of God on display, his sovereignty more clear than in the person and actions of Jesus Christ. But he's also the very purity of God. Because of God, again, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, Jesus became for us righteousness. He came to be for us the ethical character and conduct that you and I can never achieve by our own, but that God requires. And Jesus himself is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God including the promise to see his face. But if that's not enough, believer, it gets even better. Not only is Jesus the power of God, the presence of God, the purity of God, the answer to all of the promises of God for you, but he has sent his spirit in the meantime until we see his face. And how is the spirit of Jesus described? He is described as the presence of God within us and among us as his followers. He inhabits our praise and our worship. He is given to us to guide our living and to fill our being. But he's also the power of God within us. The same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave is at work in you, believer, this week to overcome sin giving you new life as you put to death, as I put to death the old man, as we crucify all our vain idols and attempts at seeking security and safety outside of him. And the spirit of Jesus is also at work to apply the purity of God to our lives. He enables us to live lives that please God, that honor him, no matter how difficult the challenge, no matter how hard the sin, how convoluted the circumstances, how imminent the danger, or how sweet the siren call of our idols. He is the righteousness of God for us, applying it to us. And the spirit of Jesus is the down payment of the promise of eternal safety and security. The spirit is the engagement ring from Jesus to his bride that we are his people, that he loves us, and that he's going to return for us. That he's going to take us back to his father's house where with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity, we will dwell and see the face of God the upright will behold his face. And friend, if you are not yet a Christian, how long will you wait? What is keeping you from turning off the voices around you communicating where danger lies so that you can hear the voice of God speaking through his word? Those who reject God by rejecting Jesus are described in this psalm in verses 5 and 6. Look again at these verses with me. I want you to see them. This, This is not my word. This is the word of God. The Lord hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. Friends, 
the portion of those who reject their safety in God alone is terrifying. But here's the reality. Jesus Christ, the presence, power, purity, and promise of God took that cup described in verse 6, the cup of God's wrath reserved for the wicked, filled to the brim with justice against injustice, the injustice of our cosmic crimes of treason, that cup that was filled with burning coals and sulfur and a scorching wind and our own traps, he drank it down to the last dregs for us. Jesus drank that cup. So friend, you can decide to experience the justice of God on your own or you can place yourself under the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, receiving mercy instead of wrath, grace in place of justice through the Lord Jesus. So friend, come to Jesus today. When I was a young boy, I was terrified of the dark. I hated it. I still hate darkness to this day. My imagination can run wild. I can remember on a couple of occasions lying in bed and looking out the open doorway to the hall and there must have been just enough light coming from the moon or whatever through the hall window so that I could see a vague outline in the door in the open door. And it looked to my mind like a giant codweb. The problem was I had to go to the bathroom, but I was terrified. There's a giant codweb in my door. So I began to quietly call for mom and dad, slowly raising my volume until they heard me and came in. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember in tears explaining what the problem was. I had to go to the bathroom, and there's a giant cobweb in the door, and I'm terrified. I don't remember what dad and mom said. I don't remember what much of what they did, but I do remember this. One of them reached over and flipped the light on. And just like that, the codweb was gone. There was a clear path to the bathroom. The danger was removed. So I calmed down. They turned the light back off. And guess what? There was the codweb. But I wasn't scared anymore. I knew exactly the nature of reality because someone turned the light on. Friends, through Psalm 11 this morning, through the pen of David, for some of you, God has turned the light on. 
because the reality is there are many giant codwebs in life. Some of them are real, some of them are imagined, and some of them we don't even see. But the God of Psalm 11 is the God who sent the Lord Jesus Christ for us in our place so that we might live like soon-to-be royalty because God has turned the light on. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need you. And as the song says, oh, how we need you. Every hour, we need you. You alone are our one defense, our righteousness. God, how we need you. We confess that our sin runs deep, but your grace is more. And where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, we are free. For holiness is Christ in us. So, Father, in the midst of the dangers of life, the pop-up thunderstorms that bring imminent threat, teach our song to rise to you. And when those temptations come and we can't stand, help us to fall on you and trusting ourselves completely to you. Help us to live as if Jesus is truly our only hope and stay. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.